A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Selah. Both the singers and the players on the instruments say, all my springs are in you. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look at this psalm together. Lord, I pray that as you give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, who's here with us, Lord, Lord might he do his work of giving us understanding, opening up the eyes of our, of our hearts, Lord, that we might see your truth. Might he, as the spirit of truth, help us to understand. Lord, might he glorify Jesus during this time. And Lord, might we be given also by your spirit discernment and understanding that we might know how to respond to your truth that you give to us tonight. And so God, be with us. Teach us, we pray. And we ask it in your precious and holy name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we see, this 87th Psalm is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, it is uh, called a song. And as we look at this, we, we, we see that it, it basically is a song that, that um, highlights the glory of the city of God, Jerusalem. It also speaks of the blessing of being a Jerusalemite, if you will. I mean, here tonight we've got Uplandites and Rancho Cucamongaites and Chinoites and Ontarioites and Fontanaites. Yes, I'm a Fontanaite. Pomonaites. Did I miss anybody? Okay. Um, I don't think we have any Shuhites. That's really short people. Anyway. Um, yeah, the, 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 the blessing of being from Jerusalem, not just living in Jerusalem, but actually being born in Jerusalem. That's the, these statements, you know, he'll say that this one was born there. Because the city is so great, because the city is so blessed, because the city of Jerusalem is the place that God chose for himself to be his city. And being his city, that means it's the place that where he dwells. Now, now, now we know that there's nothing that can contain him, you know, no, no building can contain him and so forth. But we also know that when, when, when the Lord gave instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle, and then of course, uh, David gave instructions to uh, Solomon to build the temple and all. And 
You know, when that, that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was constructed and the Ark of the Covenant placed inside it and, and the veil that was before it and all, well, we, we know that God spoke of the fact that he, he dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat, right? So it was a place of his dwelling, a place of his presence. That's why it is such a glorious city, as we see it described here uh, in this psalm and in, in other places as well. Um, so th so that, that's the idea of it. And, and being such a glorious place, such a glorious city, God's presence there, anyone who was born there, anyone who could call that city their own, is, is incredibly privileged and incredibly blessed. And so that, that's, that's basically what this psalm is, is talking about. The occasion for the writing of the psalm isn't given, of course. Uh, no, no idea when this was written, uh, but we do know it was written by the sons of Korah. One of the things that uh, we could look at, though, is, is in verse 4 when we see that Babylon is mentioned. Um, it would seem that this was written beyond, after, the time of King David, because it was a few hundred years after that when Babylon came into power. So being of the sons of Korah would have been a, uh, one of the descendants of Korah who probably wrote this. We can't know for certain, but I think that's a good clue uh, to give us some understanding in regard to when perhaps this was written. Well, looking again at the first three verses. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So it speaks of, as this son of Korah wrote this, he's speaking of the fact that God's foundation, his foundation, is in the holy Mountains, his foundation, perhaps referring to Jerusalem being the center of the redemptive work of God. His work of redemption took place there in Jerusalem. Uh, in, in looking at uh, David Gusick's note on this passage, he said this that it was there in Jerusalem that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac on the Mount of the Lord where his perfect sacrifice would be provided. Of course, Mount Moriah, as we know. It was there that David, Israel's greatest earthly king, reigned and made it the kingdom's capital. There, the tabernacle of God found its fulfillment and permanence in the great temple that David designed and Solomon built. It was there that the institutions of sacrifice Worship and priestly service were established for centuries among the Jewish people. It was there that Jesus recognized and honored the city and observed the feasts and temple rituals. It was there that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and rose from the grave there in Jerusalem. There the church was born. On a certain day of Pentecost, a few years after the death of Jesus, there the apostles served 
and they sent out the gospel throughout the known world. And it is there that God will establish the physical and geographic center of his ultimate kingdom upon earth during his millennial reign. Jerusalem's kind of an important city in terms of God's work on this earth. You know, and some of us in this room have had the pleasure, the privilege to be able to visit Jerusalem. It's, a, it, it, it's such an experience to be there. It really is. I've had the, 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 the joy, uh, along with my precious bride, to have been to Jerusalem, Israel, and of course Jerusalem each time we go, eight or nine times that we've been able to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, every time we come back, we're just raring to go back again, raring to go back again. That, that's just how it is, you know, and being there is just such a, such a privilege. But Jerusalem, a very, very important city, and it's his foundation, the writer writes, and this foundation is in the holy mountains. Now, it's not like God was was searching for a holy place to put his, his city. It's not like he was searching around, oh, that looks like a good holy place. Yeah, that is a good holy place. That's where I'll be. No, it's, it's a holy place, the holy mountains. The mountains there are holy because that's where God is. That, that's where his presence is known. That's why he chose it. He dwells between the cherubim, as we talked about, He's there, and so it is a holy place because of that. The hills of Judea are holy because of his presence there. And, and we know also that he loves Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. During the um, attacks that, that have... that. Judea had, had experienced over the years uh, from the Philistines, the Midianites, whatever it may be, uh, there would be various cities throughout, throughout Judea that would be uh, um, a, a, attacked, they would be raided and, 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 and destroyed, maybe perhaps not destroyed, but some were, some were destroyed. Well, well Jerusalem was spared, and it was, was, was probably during one of those times, was maybe perhaps that happened recently, certainly it's a historical fact, that God would protect Zion, protect Jerusalem, until, of course, Babylon came. And we understand the reason that God brought the Babylonians be because of uh, the, the infidelity of the Jewish people. But God protected Jerusalem much more than the others. And it is only of, of, of Jerusalem that, that God speaks that we are to pray for its peace, pray for the peace of Jerusalem the Lord tells us in the Psalms. And so uh, God loves Jerusalem more than the rest of Judah. That is what this, this uh, passage is saying there in verse 2. And then finally, verse 3, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. We, throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, many glorious things are spoken of uh, about Jerusalem. I chose one, Isaiah 60 Verses 1 through 3, Isaiah wrote this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. 
For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Isaiah is speaking of the reality that the glory of God will shine upon Jerusalem, and it never shined brighter than when Jesus walked its streets. Never shined brighter than when Jesus was crucified, a signal of his love, the, 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 the glory of his love for us. And then, of course, the glory of Easter, the glory of his resurrection. Yes, the glory has shone upon Jerusalem. And then we see the word Selah. Pause and think about this. And so, writing of the glory of Jerusalem because of the presence of God there essentially is what we see the son of Korah writing about. Think with me, if you will. Think of the reality that God dwells within his church. We as the church of Jesus Christ, we see that the Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of us. We see that even we individually as Christian people, as, as those who have trusted Christ for our salvation, he places his Holy Spirit within us. If Jerusalem as a city is, is glorious because of the presence of God there, what about us? The church as a whole, individually as individual people who have received Christ as Savior and God placing His Spirit within us to dwell with us 24-7. That's a crazy thing, guys. God dwells in you and in me. How glorious is that? Now, did, when you woke up this morning, did you acknowledge the fact that God was in you? I hope so. We can be very forgetful of that. We can, we can take it for granted. You know, but guys, God chose to dwell inside of you. He called you to himself so that he could do that. He called you to himself that you could be purged of your sins and be fit for God to dwell within you. Apart from that, he's, it's, it, we're not fit for that, obviously, but... He did that. He does dwell in us. That is a crazy, crazy thing and an, and an incredibly glorious thing. I hope that we don't lose sight of that ever. I hope we never take it for granted. I hope that we don't, are, are not mindful of it because, I mean, that in itself, that in itself should cause us to sing praises to God all through the day, every single day for the rest of our lives. And if, if, we never, if we never have a, a single, what we might call, good thing happen in our life again, that has happened and cannot be taken away from us. That's what gives us the strength to endure the hardships in our lives. 
That's, what's, that's what has caused the martyrs for Christ over the hundreds and hundreds of years since he came to be willing to die for him because his presence was, was within them and he gave them the, to, the strength to endure the, the, the flames that they were burnt with or whatever, whatever kind of torture they received, whatever method of execution came upon them. Because the glory of the risen Christ is in us through the presence of God's Holy Spirit. God in, God in you, the hope of glory. Incredible, incredible. I mean, we should finish the study right now and just do some more worship. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, that's so incredibly powerful if we just dwell on that reality. Well, let's continue on. Verse 4. Um, <clears throat> I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon. Rahab is a reference to Egypt. We see that in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, to those who know me, behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. Now, now here we see the Lord, uh, through the writer, uh, writing of the reality that foreign nations, other nations are going to come to know him. And even those nations that would be called God's enemies, the enemies of God's people. I mean, all, all of these places, uh, Egypt, Babylon, uh, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia, I mean, they, they all were enemies of the people of God. And yet we see the reality that they will come to worship God in Israel. Um, one passage where we see Egypt referred to as Ahab is in Isaiah 51, 9. Uh, Rahab, excuse me. Did I say Ahab? Rahab. Ah Ahab's a different guy. He was a sailor, wasn't he? King Ahab as well. Anyway, um, Isaiah 51, 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart, Egypt apart, and wounded the serpent? Uh, a few other passages as well, but that's a reference to Egypt. And, and, and this is a reference to all these nations coming to Christ, to worship Christ in Jerusalem. And it's a reference, of course, to Jesus' millennial reign. That's when that is going to happen. Hasn't happened yet. Although there, there may be individuals in those countries now that do worship the Lord, that they have come to Christ, but it's not going to be nations coming to him, as is going to take place in that day. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, Thus in a very short space, the psalmist indicates that in the day of God's future blessing, all nations of the world or at least representatives of all the nations of the world, will come to know and praise the true God. All nations will come. And, and, out of Zion, and of Zion, verse 5, it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Now, as verse 5 refers to nations... Verse 4, excuse me, refers to nations. Verse 5 and 6 would seem to, re to really refer to individuals that are of 
other nations. And we see it in verse 6, the Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 24, 22 through 24, we see these words. But you have come, and this is speaking of you who received Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Recorded in heaven, heavenly Jerusalem, this is speaking of a spiritual birth, born in Jerusalem, being born there, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we who have received Christ have done that. In our new birth, we are children of God. We, in a very sense, our homes being, well, we know that our homes really are in heaven, our home is there, not here. And we will reside in the new Jerusalem through all eternity once the, the new earth and the new, and the, the new heavens are, are created by God, you know, and, and the new Jerusalem. That's where we're going to be. But this is speaking of a spiritual birth, our, our rebirth, being born again. And, and the blessing and the privilege of spiritual birth, again, is just simply incredible. And, and, and that's why we see God residing within us, because that has happened, right? God records it. He's the one who makes it happen. He's the one that does the work. He's the one who declares us to be righteous. He's the one who is making our new home. He, uh, our, our Lord Jesus is, 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 is up now preparing dwelling places for us, mansions for us. I mean, the Lord is doing that. And, and this is a, a reference, of course, to God himself recording the fact of it. It's not some other person. It's not we ourselves. It is God. He's the one doing it. He's saying, you are right with me. He's saying, you, your sins are covered by the blood of my son. I do not see your sin because I see you through the lens of the blood of my son. That's why he died for you, so that I would not see your sin. Uh, he, he has given you his own robe of righteousness so that you can fellowship with me, be in my presence forevermore. He does it all. He does it all. One commentator by the name of Clark wrote this, it will be an honor to any person to have been born in Zion. But how great is the honor to be born from above and to be a citizen of the Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem that is from above, to be children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Again, guys, let's not take that lightly. 
Let's not allow the, 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 the troubles of this world, the difficulties in this world, the distractions of this world, all that's going on, you know, working and paying the bills and raising the family and making sure your car is working and, and whatever, taking care of the house, whatever it may be. You know, we, we can get so distracted that we forget who we are and what God has done for us, can't we? Oh, let's not let that happen. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for early in the day to do your devotions. Do your devotions early and pray. Pray to the God who saved you. Talk to him, thank him, worship him in the morning. Allow your day to get started that way. And that will be with you the rest of the day. And you'll find that, that, that when we're faithful to do that, the Lord gives us power to deal with the difficult circumstances that will come that day, whatever it might be. He gives us that ability to do so because, well, quite frankly, because we have an awareness of his presence with us. An awareness of his presence with us. Wonderful, glorious things that we see there. And so at the end of verse 6, Selah, think about that. Oh, I pray that we'll think about this often. We'll think about it daily. And we will thank our Lord on a daily basis as well. And finally, verse 7, both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. Now, that's not talking about the spring of each year that just started with us. Although there's kind of a, there's an allusion to the, the, the idea of the new life that comes from spring, during spring. You know, the new life is springing forth from, from, from the, 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 the plants and the trees and the grass and everything. Well, not quite yet. It's still raining. But uh, April showers bring May flowers, right? I don't know what April's or March storms do, but that's what April showers do. Anyway, speaking of the fact that it is springs, it's, it's the, the, the fresh water, the, the, the living water, you know, God being the source of life. And, and really the writer is saying, as, as he's speaking to Jerusalem, is what he's doing, all my springs are in you. But again, that's only because of the reality of the presence of God within the city. Because of the fact that you know, if this was indeed written um, closer to the time of, uh, of you know, 700 B.C. or so, uh, uh, maybe 600 B.C., 650, just maybe just before Babylon took Jerusalem, perhaps. Well, the temple was there, and that's where God resided. It was the house of God. That's why it was regarded to be that. But all my springs, you are my source of life. You are my source of all good things. We know that all good things come from above. James tells us that. And so the reality of recognizing that God is the source of life. Going on, verse, let's look at Psalm 88. We're just going to read this uh, a few verses at a time. I'm going to read through verse 5, then we'll get into the teaching together. Psalm 88, I'm going to let me read the inscription first and then the first five verses. A song, a song 
excuse me, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician set to Mahalath Leonoth, a contemplation of Heman, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. Are you encouraged yet? This has got to be the most sorrow-filled, sad, mournful psalms among them all. As this is written by the, by the sons of Korah, uh, specifically we see at the end of the inscription a contemplation, that, that means a, 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 a teaching, of Heman the Ezraite, um, he's the one that actually wrote this. It's an incredibly sorrow-filled psalm that is filled with not just sorrow, but, but Heman is just laying it out, all the troubles that he has. He begins in verse 3, my soul is full of troubles, and then the rest of the verses I'll speak about what that trouble is. There are a few glimpses of the Lord, and we see the greatest glimpse of him in the very first verse, the very first line, O Lord God of my salvation. I find it interesting that as, he's, he, as he sets out to cry out to God, to write about his crying out to God and all of the troubles that he's having in his life, the various things that are going on, and, and He's not really speaking about any details about what they are, but he's just describing them in, in these terms that speak about the heaviness uh, of, of his trouble, the heaviness of his tribulation that he's going through. But he begins by saying, O God of my salvation. O God of my salvation. He, he recognizes as he speaks to Yahweh, O Yahweh, God of my salvation, he's, rec he's recognizing that he is the God who has saved him. He's acknowledging that he has life through his God. You are my salvation. You're the God of my salvation. Uh, and then he speaks about how he's been crying out to him and so forth. But he acknowledges that. I think it's a great way to start this psalm. And any time we, we pray, really, Jesus taught us in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, that we're to begin our prayers, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're to acknowledge that he's our Father. That means that, well, we sang it earlier, I am a child of God. And we know what that entails. We know how that happened. We were speaking about it just a few moments ago what God did to make that happen and the resulting uh, life that we have, the reality of God dwelling within us, all those things. Being a child of God, 
means that. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. That basically means might your name be regarded as holy. And when I pray, Lord, I want your name, I want others to see that you are holy. How are they going to see that? Except for we who pray that prayer, living our lives in such a way that he is seen in our lives. Instead of being just simply us, right? Well, as Heman starts this way, I think he is on the right track, understanding that his Lord, his Savior, the God of his salvation, will hear his prayer. He asks numerous times during the psalm for him to hear. Um, but he also, we also see that there's a level of confidence in that the God who saved him is also hearing his prayer and will respond. And there's nothing wrong with us telling God our sorrows. I mean, we, we, if there was something wrong with that, then God wouldn't tell us to pray at all. I mean, we, we're, we're to pray to, to first and foremost praise him, to acknowledge his glory but also to cast our needs upon him, you know, to, to make our supplication before him, asking him to supply our needs. You know, I, I think that God wants us to be honest about how we feel, about the pain that we may be in, the hurt that we have, the sorrows that we have, as well as the joys that we experience. He wants to hear from us. Not that he needs to know. He, of course, already knows but I think it, he's pleased when we acknowledge that, that, that we're honest with ourselves about these things. And not pretending that, you know, life is better than it is. It, it, can, be, it can be rough to live in this world, huh? It, it, it's a world of pain. It's a world of sorrow. And, and the joys that we do experience are because the reality that God is here with us in this world. We're just traveling through. Heaven is our home. We're going to be there soon. But we're traveling, I mean, right now, spiritual warfare, right? And, and right now, in this warfare, we are fighting behind enemy lines. And the enemy knows who we are. It's not like we're spies and that we're able to disguise ourselves. And say, he knows who we are. And he takes his pot shots at us. There are times we get hit. There are times that it's painful, it hurts, it slows us down a bit. But God is faithful. God is always faithful. Well, as... as as Heman writes this, you know, one of the things you'll notice as we see, and we, we got from, the, uh, from verses 3 to 5, I, I mean, 
basically, you know, um, verses 3 to 5, we, we see those, those words there, um, my life draws near to the grave, count of those who go down to the pit and so forth. I mean, just to, we could say, he's just saying, I'm dying here. That's basically what he's saying in, in four or five different ways. He's saying, I am dying. Well, this one who was dying, Haman, he's referred to in a number of other scriptures in the Old Testament, by the way. Um, assuming that all these references are to him, it would seem likely that they are. But he's noted for, in 1 Kings 4.31, for his great wisdom. In 1 Chronicles 6.33, he's noted for being a Kohathite among the sons of Korah, as we see in the inscription. He's noted for his music ability and his service in 1 Chronicles 6.33 and, and a list of others there in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. He's noted for his many exceptional sons and daughters, 1 Chronicles 25. And also in 1 Chronicles 25, he's noted for his service to the king. So this appears to be a man who is very faithful to his God, has been blessed by his God, worships his God. And yet living in this world, he's having some trouble. And he is very um, vocal about that trouble in the sense of through this psalm being vocal to the Lord as he's praying these prayers. Charles Spurgeon wrote that the sorrows of one saint are lessons to others. Experimental teaching is exceedingly valuable. In other words, learn through the experience of others. But we don't do that very well, do we? We just kind of say, oh, that'll never happen to me. <laughs> you know? But it's valuable to do that. So, Heman is basically saying again, I cry out to you, hear my prayer, and then verses 3 through 5, all the troubles. My soul is full of troubles, and then he lists all those troubles, verses 4 and 5, basically saying that he's dying. Well, verse 6 and 7, You have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness and the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. You know, in um, in Second Timothy one ten, we see the Apostle Paul writing these words to Timothy, speaking of Jesus, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, back to verses uh, 3, 4, and 5 just for a moment. Um, those passages, like, Heman is writing from a sense of hopelessness and despair. You know, I, I'm, I'm dying here. I'm, I'm as good as a dead man here, Right? doesn't sound very uh, hopeful at all. 
And, and these, these words speak of the fact that, well, David Guzik wrote this. He said, the understanding of the afterlife was murky at best in the Old Testament. But Jesus let us know more about heaven and hell than anyone else could. Jesus could do this because he had firsthand knowledge of the world beyond. But we see here that Paul, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Timothy that it is through Jesus that life and immortality are brought to light. We gain understanding of the reality of life and immortality through the gospel. And so Heman writing pre-gospel didn't really understand, you know, the, the Old Testament writers didn't really understand the things that we see. They, they really didn't. I mean, there, there are signs of it, you know, um, uh, and I'll, I'll reference a little bit later to something that we, we see Job spoke of, but um, it was not something that was popu popularly known. Um, one pastor of about, back in the 19th century, McLaren, he wrote, he, he said this, such thoughts, these ideas of, of all the, 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 the death, I'm like a dead man uh, among the dead and so forth. He says, such thoughts are in startling contrast with the hopes that sparkle in some Psalms, such as Psalm 1610, and they show that clear, permanent assurance of future blessedness was not granted to the ancient church. Nor could there be sober certainty of it until after Christ's resurrection. But it is also to be noticed that this psalm ne neither affirms nor denies a future resurrection. So the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, the reality of the promises of Jesus, you know, uh, and, and we as New Testament believers, we're aware of these things. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ in a few weeks. Um, we understand the promises that Jesus made. You know, Jesus said in, in, in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the reality of, of the things that Jesus did and said, what he said particularly on that last night with his apostles before he was crucified, wanting us to know that in him we may have peace. You know, and, and just as a reminder, guys, you, you want to have more peace in your heart? Read and understand John chapter 13 through 16. Such hope-filled words from Jesus Christ. That in me, you may have peace. But we know in the world we're going to have trouble. In John 16, 23 to 24, earlier than this, but on that same evening with his apostles, he said this, you know, as, as uh, Heman is crying out, Lord, hear my prayer, incline your ear to me. In those verses, Jesus said, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So, so this promise of answered prayer, 
Now, that is, that is, of course, to the person who asks in Jesus' name. It's not, it's not like it's a formula or a recipe. As long as we say Jesus' name, amen, that means it's going to happen. And Jesus' name means basically living a life like Jesus. Basically, looking to him and all that he is and being his disciple, being faithful to him, worshiping him, wanting to honor him. It's basically, in a simple way, that that's what that means. But we have the promise of answered prayer. We don't have to cry out to God, Lord, please listen to me, please. You haven't been, but please listen now, you know. No, we've got the promise of answered prayer and the promise of joy that comes with it. Along with the promise of peace in the midst of tribulations. Haman didn't experience that. He didn't know the gospel. He didn't know what Christ was going to do. He understood that there was going to be a Messiah, but he, doesn't, he didn't know, I mean, not even an inkling of what we know as God has given to us in the New Testament, right? So there is a lot of difference there. And, you know, because of the hope and because of the promises that Jesus brings to us, we can, while we're enduring these difficult times, and, you know, um, I want to read verse 6 through the end of the, of the psalm right now. And then I want to pick up on the th other things that I'm going to be sharing with you. Um, we're going to stop just for a moment. Um, we read verse 6 and 7 already. Verse 8, You have put away my acquaintances far from me. In other words, I've lost my friends. You've made me an abomination to them. I'm shut up and I cannot get out. My eyes waste away because of affliction. We're beginning to hear some things that seem very similar to something that Job might say, you know. Um, Lord, I've called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Is there really a resurrection? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Like in this place of death, are, are, are you going to be known? Is, is your loving kindness, faithfulness, your wonders, your righteousness really going to be understood? Verse 13, But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Those are common words that we've seen in other psalms. I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. There seems to be an understanding on, on Heman's part that, that he deserved this. Otherwise, he wouldn't say wrath. He understood that he was a sinner. Your wrath has gone, has gone over me. Your fierce wrath, your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you've put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. A lot of repetition that is here in these verses. 
But you don't see him ending with any positive note. The greatest positive note in here was the very first verse. O Lord, God of my salvation. And then all these troubles, all these things. And, 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 and guys, we, because we have received the promises of Jesus Christ, because we know him and his resurrection, the promise of peace and joy, the hope, understanding the, that, that his death on that cross is an expression, a very real expression of the love of God for us. Understanding that he loves us. We don't ever have to ask God, Lord, do you, do you really love me? I thought you loved me. I'm beginning to wonder now with what's going on, this pain that I'm feeling. We certainly blame an awful lot on God, don't we? Blame him for a lot of certain, uh, different things. I know that a lot of you guys can relate to the pain and the sorrow that's reflected here. I can too. You know, um, speaking for myself, you know, I, I can relate to this. But you know what, guys? I know with certainty that I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of our Lord. I have absolutely zero doubt about that. Zero. I'm not concerned. Not concerned with that. I do experience pain. You guys know what's going on with, with me and my wife and all. And, you know, um, I'm looking forward to heaven. You know, it's a very difficult journey that the Lord has us on right now, but the Lord's with us. And John 16, 33 is, is, is true. In me, you may have peace. In Jesus, we have peace. I have a peace in my heart. I do. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the grieving, the sadness, it's so sad to see my, my, my bride in the condition that she's in right now. It's a very sad thing. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. This woman with all that, this, this, this joy and all this life and so vibrant, vivacious and beautiful inside and out, you know, and that person's not there anymore. It's hard. It's hard. My eyes are filling up with tears right now, but I, I weep every day. But I still have peace. And there is a sense of the joy of God because I know what's ahead of us. Not only am I going to be there, I know that my bride's going to be there too. You know, and it seems that the Lord is fulfilling a, a prayer that I have prayed that, that the Lord would take my bride before he takes me. You know, so that I would be the one that would have to grieve and not her. You know, I, I don't want her to have to do that, and it seems that the Lord is answering that prayer. I'm grateful for that. I'm, I, I am. I'm grateful for that. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, the Philippians 1, 21 through 24, For to me, 
To live is Christ and to die is gain. That should give a, we should give a good amen to that. But if I live on in the flesh, this m will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And might we look at life that way? I'm trying to do that. You know, I'm looking forward to being with the Lord. I am. I'm looking forward to, in a very real way, I'm looking forward to life in this world um, coming to an end and being with the Lord Jesus Christ. When is that going to happen? I have no idea. It certainly appears that he's going to be taking my bride first. I'm grateful for that. While I'm here, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I, I, I want to be there. I, I'm, I'm yearning for heaven. You know, this whole, experience, this whole experience with with my bride has given me a greater longing for heaven. It truly has. But at the same time, I will occupy until he comes for me. I'll be about his work until he comes for me. And, and, and I know that as long as I'm here, the way that God wants to use me is going to be useful, it's going to be needful and a blessing to others who receive through God's ministry through me. I, I understand that. I want that to happen. But at the same time, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you know? And, and so that, that's where my heart's at. How about you guys? You guys the same? You know, I, I know so many of us are that way. I know I'm not unique, but certainly the attitude of the Apostle Paul is something that is worthy to look at and follow what he has to say there. But, you know, I'm just so grateful for what the Lord already has done. But because of what he's done, I can speak the way I'm speaking right now, you know? And, and, and I can have this peace, and I can have joy, and I can have hope, because I do have Jesus. I have him. There's nothing more important. Nothing more important for anyone. So I encourage you guys, live each moment with an awareness of Christ in you, the hope of glory with an awareness of what he's done for you, with an awareness of your future, knowing what's ahead of you, with an awareness of the reality of, of spiritual warfare and being willing to be in the battle, even willing to be one of those martyrs for Christ if the Lord should, should, should so grant that to you. Who knows? Things are sure changing in our culture. You know, it's getting harder and harder and harder for us to live our faith in the culture that we now live in. You know, it's, 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 it's not 1950 anymore. That's for sure. That's for sure. So, Haman did not know things that we know. He could not see things that we have seen. 
Um, we've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us, guys. Let's, with all awareness, acknowledge that, acknowledge Him, allow Him to do for us what He wants to do. To give us that hope, to give us that peace, to give us that joy, to be that one that sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. And Father, thank you for that truth. We pray, God, that you would have your way in our hearts, Lord, tonight. Lord, that we would have that awareness. Lord, that we'll have it again tomorrow. Lord, might we begin each day with, a, with an acknowledgement of that truth. And Lord, it'll help us to live lives of thankfulness. It'll give us strength to endure the hard things in the day. It'll give us strength to live for your glory rather than for our own pleasure or our own ease. Thank you, God. Now, Lord, we pray that you would be with each one of us, pour your spirit out upon us, even as he inhabits us, even as he dwells within us. Might he be poured out on us to give us the strength and the gifts that we need to bring glory and honor to you in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys.